How many of you have ever visited a Hall of Fame of any kind? Anybody? Show of hands. A Hall of Fame of any kind, okay? Well, a few weeks ago, I was doing a little digging, and I was surprised at how many Halls of Fame there are. There are so many that uh, it would be shocking to me, it would almost be shocking to me that someone in one of our two services didn't at least know someone in some sort of Hall of Fame. There are so many. There are a number of aviation halls of fame, space halls of fame, lots of music halls of fame, over 100 sports halls of fame. There, there are also some very, very interesting halls of fame. There is a circus hall of fame. Do you all know that? In Peru, Indiana. Yeah, that's the Circus Hall of Fame. It was in Sarasota, Florida, for those of y'all wondering. Now it's in Peru, Indiana. I've done my homework. Uh, so if you're, if you're interested in circus life, you can go to Peru, Indiana. All right? There's also a National Toy Hall of Fame. Here's a picture of that one. Now that looks like some fun. So uh, the National Toy Hall of Fame. And uh, here's an interesting one. It's in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, the University of Alabama. It's the Insurance Hall of Fame, okay? Here's a picture of it. So if you're looking for a great vacation spot, Don Walker's not in here. Somebody let him know about the Insurance Hall of Fame, all right? So he can go and check out the, the heroes who paved the way for the insurance business, okay? So lots of halls of fame. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 11. This week, and next week, and the next, however long, we're going to be looking at the Bible's Hall of Fame, or what some clever people have named the Hall of Faith. The Hall of Faith. Hebrews 11. It has been a long time since we've been in Hebrews, right? And I know that those of y'all who have been with us, you, you may not even remember where we left off, but I do, okay? So don't worry. When we were last in Hebrews, we finished Hebrews chapter 10. And I shared with you at that time that for the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews just lays out the theological foundation for the book. And we have, we have camped out, believe it or not, this is the... I believe it's the 28th sermon on Hebrews, okay, this morning. So we have, we have looked at this a lot. He spent a whole lot of time, the author of Hebrews, just giving us a, a theology lesson on how and why Jesus is greater. That's his main emphasis in the first part of that book. And we have said time and time again that this first century Jewish Christian audience, though they had a great beginning as Christians, some of them were at the point where they were really struggling spiritually. Times were tough for them, and there were competing belief systems around during this time that were prevalent and popular, that were influencing them a bit, and Many of them were considering they were being tempted with looking beyond Jesus, turning away from Jesus. They were considering adopting other belief systems and adding them to the Christian faith. So they were looking away from Christ. They were drifting from Him. And the author of Hebrews writes to them and basically says, don't do that. 
He's encouraging them not to do that. He's telling them, don't look beyond Jesus. Don't turn away from him, but consider him. Look to him and trust in him. And the way he makes his case is by explaining that Jesus is better. He's greater. Greater than what? Greater than everyone and everything. If you have him, you have everything you could possibly need, period. He shows that first Christ is God's greatest revelation, greater than the prophets of old, better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Abraham, better than Levi, better than Aaron. He is our supreme king priest associated with the better covenant who has accomplished a superior work on our behalf. He has accomplished our salvation. And we, through faith alone, in him alone, can be forgiven and saved and restored to God permanently. That's why he's better. That's been the point the author has been making for the, for the first nine and a half chapters of this book. In chapter 10, he transitions middle of the way through. After giving us a lengthy theology lesson, laying the theological framework for the book, he transitions to the practical and he says, therefore, in light of who Christ is and the work that he has accomplished on your behalf, here is how you are to live. And then he gives it to us. The last time we were in Hebrews, finishing chapter 10, we talked about how the author ends the chapter by basically saying, in light of these truths, because Jesus is greater, continue to look to Jesus. Consider Jesus, trust in Jesus, do not drift from Jesus. He calls for his readers in verses 36 through 39 of Hebrews 10 to not shrink back, but stand strong. Persevere in the faith. How do they do that? By not allowing themselves to long for and love the temporal possessions of this world more than their eternal inheritance that God gives them in Jesus. They're to do it by keeping their eyes fixed on things that matter for eternity and they are to do it by faith. Hebrews 10, 38. My righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now I know that's a lot by way of introduction, but we, we needed to I needed to bring you back to the book of Hebrews and I needed to, to lay that groundwork because it sets up where we're going in Hebrews chapter eleven. At the end of Hebrews ten, the author of Hebrews talks to his audience about the need for them to stand strong and persevere in the faith. And he says the way to persevere, the, the, the way to stand strong is to live by faith. And here in Hebrews 11, the author is going to define what faith is, and then he's going to give them examples of the faithful. In chapter 11, the author of Hebrews is going to define what faith is, then provide several Old Testament examples of people who persevered, who stood strong in the faith, who lived by faith. And my prayer for us this morning is that we too would learn from these examples of the faithful and we too would live accordingly, okay? He begins by giving a very simple definition of faith. Remember in verse 38 of Hebrews 10, he calls for his readers to live by faith. Then Hebrews 11:1, 1, he defines what faith is. Okay, we're to live by faith. What is faith? He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. Great definition of faith right here. And it's important for us to look at because many are unclear about what faith truly is. Some people use that word and they think of faith as just being generally optimistic that things are going to work out. Right? Let me give you an example. Let's say you're going on a vacation to the beach and the forecast is rain. You're like, well, I'm going to go and I'm just going to have faith that it won't rain. That's not the biblical definition of faith. Faith is not being generally optimistic that things are going to go your way, that things are going to work out for you. The Bible has a different, different definition of faith altogether. The way the Bible talks about faith is in this way. Faith is when you take God at his word and you trust that he is going to do what he says he is going to do and live accordingly regardless of what happens because of who he is. That's the biblical definition. Let me say it again just in case you missed it. And our truth for the week explains it as well. Faith is when you take God at his word and you trust that he is going to do what he says he is going to do, and you live accordingly regardless of the circumstances because of who God is. That's the biblical definition. It's being confident, being sure that God is going to do what he said he's going to do because he said he's going to do it, and God is trustworthy. Regardless of circumstances, you believe God is going to do what he promised because of who he is. It is an assurance of things hoped for, things promised, being convinced of things that you have not seen, but you believe because you believe God in his word. That's the biblical definition of faith. Look at verse 2. He says, For by it the people of old received their commendation. Now I want you to underline that word commendation. Words are important in Scripture, right? They're given by God through His writers. This word is very, very important, though we might just kind of gloss over it. Don't do that. It's used seven times in this chapter alone. It's the Greek word martyreo, and it, it means to be spoken well of. God, in using this word through His writer, He is speaking well of this kind of faith. He is highlighting this faith. He is shining a gigantic spotlight on this faith. And he is saying, this is the kind of faith that pleases me. Now, we need to perk up, right? And learn what he's talking about. He's really, he's really emphasizing this here. And when he says people of old, he's talking about Old Testament saints who also live by faith. Remember, we, we have said in this study time and time again that the work Christ accomplished at Calvary, it's a great work because it not only works forwards, it works backwards. We, we see this in this chapter. Godly men and women made right with God by what? By faith alone. By faith alone. We're going to look at a few of these examples. But before we do, notice the writer of Hebrews gives an excellent example. After defining faith, he gives an excellent example here of what it means to live by faith. I love this. After defining it, the author gives an example from creation before listing out these faithful men and women. Check this out, verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Boy, that is a great 
verse to share about what we as Christians believe when we share our faith with an atheist or an agnostic person. This is what we believe, believers. We believe it by faith. He says, by faith, Christians understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. We believe as believers in creation ek nihilo, which means that God created something from nothing. He spoke the world into existence. Something came from nothing by the word of God. That's what we believe. Now, why do we believe it? Can we, can we take a time machine and go back to the very beginning and witness God in the act speaking the world into existence, creating something from nothing? Can we do that? Say no. Yeah, no. Those of y'all holding out for a time machine, I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. I mean, logically tracing our steps back, it leads us back to the uncaused cause, right? Who is, who is God? But we can't go back and witness that. It was a one-time, once-in-a-lifetime, never-to-be-repeated event. Why do we believe it? We believe it by faith, the writer of Hebrews says. God said it, and we take him at his word, and we, we believe it. Though we were not there, we believed by faith. Before the beginning began, there was God, the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause who brought something from nothing, created the world with words. How do we know that? He told us in his word. I remember when I was in college, and I guess you could have labeled me an agnostic. I, I really didn't know if you could know. Then, of course, God did a work in my heart and life, and, and, and he, he woke me up to faith in, in Jesus Christ, and it, and it dawned on me, no, God's gone to great lengths to make himself known. We would not know him in that way had he not given us his word and sent his son, but he did. He's made himself known, so we believe by faith. That's a great example, isn't it, from creation of what faith is. It's taking God at his word and trusting in him. Now, after explaining what faith is and providing a helpful illustration for us, the author of Hebrews is going to give us several examples of faith from the Old Testament. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three today. We're going to learn from these examples what it looks like to be a person of faith and what it looks like to live by faith. Here's the first thing. The first example we learn is from Abel. And we learn from Abel how to worship by faith. How to worship by faith. Look at Hebrews 11.4. says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which... He was commended, there's that word again, as righteous. God commending, there's that word again, him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Y'all remember the story of Cain and Abel, right? There are two brothers from the first family, sons of Adam and Eve. Cain is the older, Abel is the younger. They both bring sacrifice to God. Cain brings the fruits of his labor from the ground. Abel brings the firstborn from his flock of sheep, and we're told that God is pleased with the sacrifice of Abel, and he is displeased with the sacrifice of Cain. And Cain gets mad. He gets upset. He doesn't like it. He's jealous of his younger brother. Though he is warned by God of the evil in his heart, he responds by murdering his brother. It's the first recorded murder in Scripture, and it's a bad one. A brother killing another brother. 
The older murders the younger because the younger brother's sacrifice was more pleasing to God. Now, there has been a lot of ink spilt and trees killed speculating why Abel's sacrifice was more pleasing to God. Some have argued, well, it's a type of sacrifice. Abel offered an offering from the fruits of his own labor, an offering from the ground. Abel offered the firstborn of his flock of sheep, and so some say Abel's was more acceptable because it was a blood sacrifice. Now, I kind of like that explanation. We're not told that was the reason why. And I do not think it's by accident that Abel offered a blood sacrifice, but we also know that there were some grain offerings that were acceptable to God for certain reasons. God also demanded that the first fruits of the harvest be given to him later in the Old Testament. And so for that reason, others argue it might not have just been that, what was offered, but the manner in which it was given. Abel, with the right spirit, his, his heart was right, he gave his offering with the right heart and the right spirit. Cain gave it with impure motives and in an attempt to earn God's favor through his own merits. Now again, we're not told that specifically, but we do know that God told Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? So we're told right there, Cain wasn't doing well. And we know from scripture that, that the overflow, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and the hands and feet do. So Cain's got a heart problem, right? And there was probably, there might have been something to what was brought. So that should tell you and me something right here, should highlight for us. It should tell us there is a right and a wrong way to approach God in worship. There is. How we approach God and in the manner we do it for worship is determined by God. He sets the terms. He sets the standards for how we approach him. Now, what gives God the right to set these standards for how we approach him in worship? What gives him the right to say, this is acceptable, this is not? What gives him the right? Simple answer. He's God, right? He's creator God. That's the ultimate trump card, creator. Yeah? As God, he gets to set the standards by which people approach him. Imagine if an important person, a world leader, wanted to contact you, wanted to meet you for a meeting. My guess is you're not going to set the terms for how you meet, right? You're not going to say, well, I can fit you in 30 minutes on Monday at my house for a PB&J. If you were to do that, that meeting probably would not happen, right? That world leader will get to set the terms for how and when you meet. If that's true of a world leader, how much more so is that true of the God of the universe? Some of you say, well, I can go to God whenever. You know, I can enter into his presence whenever he wants. Yeah, but who determined that? Who made that possible? Say God. Yeah. Right? That was not always the case either, was it? No, God makes it clear in his word. There is a right and a wrong way to approach him in worship. Boy, we have lost sight of this, especially in today's world that's so me-centered. When we think of worship today, we immediately think of ourselves. We think of our own preferences, the style of worship I like, the songs I prefer to sing. I, 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 I. Worship has become so me-centered. I think that was Cain's issue. Considering how jealous he was of the favor that was shown Abel? Have you ever heard someone say, man, that, that style of music's hindering my worship? Boy, I didn't get a lot out of worship service this morning. As if the worship service is about that person. 
as if that person is the central focus of the worship service. You know what? When I read the scriptures, you know what I don't find when it talks about worship? I don't find my name anywhere. And I don't see any of y'alls either. I don't. You know why? Because worship is not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about me. It's about God. And we're to worship Him on His terms. Not desiring to, to get something selfish in return, but believing in faith as Abel did, that, that God alone is worthy of it. That's to be our motivation for worship. Whether you get something out of it or not, it's to lift our voices up in praise to the God who is worthy of all of it. That's it. And it matters in the manner in which we come. We have to come with the right heart. If we try to approach God and our hearts aren't right and we do it our own way, that, that won't be acceptable to God. God is very clear in His Word that He does not want us to just go through the motions in worship. He wants us to meet with Him on His terms for His glory. He doesn't want us to just look at it as something we got to mark off our checklist or something that, that, that we do selfishly to get something out of it. You know what God says about that kind of worship? Amos 5.23, he says, Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps I will not listen. Malachi 1.10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. He's talking about to the place of worship. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. He says, I want your heart to be right, your motives to be pure, close the doors, turn off the lights, go home, never to return. He says, I want your hearts to be right, I want you to come on my terms, worshiping him because he alone is worthy. That's to be our motivation. So here's the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Are we people of faith? Do we worship by faith? Do we worship God on His terms in accordance with His Word, in spirit and in truth, with the right heart, according to Scripture? Do we worship Him for how He has revealed Himself to us in Scripture, for who He is and what He has done? Notice how many times I said He. It's about Him. To represent God well, to make an impact, we must worship God on His terms terms Abel made an impact in his short life that continued on for generations to come look at what the author of Hebrews says about him he says through Abel's faith though he died he still speaks because Abel lived a life of faith worshiped in faith though he died tragically his story lives on as an example to us all I mean here we are this morning talking about his faith right oh that we would make that kind of impact believers the kind that goes beyond our lives to those in the future on what it means to be faithful. Here's the second key for becoming a person of faith. It's Enoch's example, how to walk by faith. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended, there's that word again, as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So here we have 
Enoch's example, the writer of Hebrews, though he makes mention of, of some main characters in Scripture, right, and uses them as an example, guys like Abraham and Moses and Joshua, he also makes mention of some obscure guys as well, like Melchizedek, remember him, and Enoch. For those who do not know, Enoch is found in Genesis chapter 5. This week, you're going to be reading in your scripture reading from Genesis 5. It's a genealogy passage from Adam to Noah. And it's very, very repetitive. Over and over again, you'll hear such and such beget such and such. They lived this amount of time, then they died. Such and such beget such and such. They lived this amount of years, and he died. And it goes on and on, over and over again. He lived this amount of years, then he died. Lived this amount of years, then he died. When you get to Enoch, however, the formula breaks, and for good reason. It's because God really wants to direct your attention to something. There's something different about Enoch than everybody else I've been reading about. We're told in verse 22, Enoch walked with God. And we're not told Enoch died. It just says, and he was not, for God took him. So notice here, Enoch, he stands out from the rest of the genealogy from Adam to Noah as one who walked with God. We are not told that Enoch died. We're simply told God took him. And here in Hebrews 11, we're told that God was pleased with Enoch because he walked with God. As a result, Enoch did not see death. God simply took him home. Now, what does it mean that Enoch walked with God? He was obviously a person of great faith. Well, I think our text helps us out here. Look at verse 6 again. We are told without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I believe that's how Enoch walked with God. He believed God and he believed that he rewards those who seek him and he had the desire to seek God above everyone else. That's used in connection with Enoch there. Do you see that? So he walked closely with God. He drew near to him in this way. I believe this verse describes how Enoch lived. He lived by faith. He believed God. He believed God was going to reward him for how he lived his life. He knew he was going to answer to God at the end of his life, so he lived his life for an audience of one. That's what it means to walk in faith. Walking in faith means you believe God, you trust in Him, you take Him at His word. You live your life in such a way believing that God is going to reward you for how you trust in Him and live for Him. You live knowing that you're going to have to stand before Him. You have this desire within you just to walk with Him and no one else. That was Enoch. He lived his life in this way, and he's recognized, though, just shortly in Genesis and Hebrews, but he lived his life in a relationship with God, followed Him no matter what. He was rewarded as a result as well. We learn a, a simple truth from Enoch's life. This is really good. Mark this down. Faith honors God and God honors faith. That's what we learn from Enoch. Faith honors God and God honors faith. That's why Enoch did not see death. God rewarded his faith by taking Enoch home to be with him. That's what it means to walk with God. Are you living your life in this way? Believers, you want to be remembered for something? Want to leave a lasting legacy? Want to be known for something? This is where it's at right here. Be known for this reason. Enoch was remembered for walking with God. You don't have to mention anything else about Enoch, do you? Do you really? He walked with God. That's good enough. 
Is that what's going to be said at your funeral? So-and-so walked with God. He or she believed God, walked with Him. Boy, we need to strive toward that end, don't we? And walk by faith. One final example, one final lesson we learn here from this passage of Scripture. It's from Noah. Noah obeyed by faith. We learn from Noah how to obey by faith. Look at Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world, and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Here we have Noah's example. Many of y'all remember this story, right? After the fall, the world kept getting worse and worse until God finally said, enough is enough. I'm going to put an end to this whole thing. And he does. He wipes out everyone by flood, everyone that is except for Noah and his family. Why were they spared? Some will say because they built a boat, which is true. But why did Noah build a boat? Because he believed the word of God. God showed Noah favor, told him about how things were going to go down and how he and his family could be spared. Noah believed God and his actions flowed from his faith. Actions should flow from your faith. You should not clear, just, just simply profess to be a person of faith. You should show it by the way in which you live. We learned that from Noah. His actions flowed from his faith. He obeyed in faith. Noah believed God's warning of a coming flood, an event not yet seen. That's faith, and his obedience flowed from that. We're told in reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. I'm sure a lot of people laughed at Noah, right? I mean, he's building a gigantic boat in the middle of nowhere. I'm sure people made fun of him and his family, but that didn't stop Noah. You know why? Because God promised judgment. And Noah, in reverent fear of God, obeyed. He feared God more than he feared the ridicule of men. It's a great lesson we learned from Noah. And he was obedient. Folks, Scripture is clear. Like it or not. I didn't write the book. I just deliver the message, right? I didn't write the mail. I just deliver it. God says in his word about himself, we're going to learn in Hebrews, he is a consuming fire. He is a just God who is set against sin. He promises judgment for those remain set against him. But he also provides rescue, amen? That's the good news. And we're to respond to him in reverent, fearful faith that his judgment is coming. That's how Noah responded. Notice what else we're told. By this, Noah condemned the world. Now, how did he do that? How did Noah condemn the world? Through his actions, by walking in the light. Through his act of obedience, Noah shined like a bright spotlight in this dark and dead world in which he lived. And we're called to do that as well. We're told in Scripture that when we do, God opens the door for the gospel to advance. Jesus told his followers, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to to your Father in heaven. Notice the last thing we're told about Noah here. Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Salvation that was accomplished by Christ at Calvary not only works forward, it works backwards. You see that? How was Noah right with God? By faith. By faith. 
Those in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward to the Messiah to come, believing in the trusted and trusting in the future promises of God. And how are we saved? We're saved by looking back at it, looking back at the work that Christ did accomplish and the promises God did fulfill in Christ and trusting in those alone for salvation. Folks, like in Noah's day, there's, there's some similarities there. We live in a dark, sin-stained world. We do. We are sinners set against God in a fallen world, and like God promised judgment and brought judgment to those in Noah's day, He promises judgment today. But here's the good news. In the same way He provided deliverance for Noah and his family in light of the coming judgment, He provides deliverance for you and me today, but what He provides for us is better by far. Not just physical rescue for a time, but spiritual rescue for eternity. How about that? But listen, for you to experience this rescue from sin and death, you must place your faith alone in Christ alone. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, to be made right with God, to become an heir of righteousness. We must place our faith alone in Christ alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. We must exchange our sin for his righteous life are you trusting in christ alone for your salvation today if not i pray you would i pray you would forsake your sin and make christ lord today would you pray with me